add a little play to your day with the Michigan Lottery. Over 90 online instant games to choose from, with prizes up to $500,000. A Marquette County woman recently won $250,000 playing online. Could you be next? Sign up online today to receive 10 free games with promo code FUN. Visit MichiganLottery.com to add a little play to your day. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. from Washington, D.C. every Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. for an hour-long Generation Progress Takeover. Check us out at genprogress.org or on Twitter at genprogress. Hello, and welcome to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Edward Theogene. And I'm Renche Cohen. Welcome. Uh, last Sunday, May 10th, was Mother's Day in the United States. This day is an opportunity each year to celebrate and express gratitude to all sorts of maternal figures in our lives. It's also an opportunity for us to think about the ways in which our criminal legal system harms women and families, and particularly women and families of color especially during the pandemic, which is shedding on just how vulnerable incarcerated people are during emergencies and crises and finding ways to change the system, which is firmly rooted in white supremacy, has never been more important. To delve into this issue and discuss why it's critical to approach criminal justice reform with a reproductive justice lens, we're joined by two really great, amazing guests with substantial expertise in this area. The first is Arissa Hall. She is the project director at National Bailout. Thank you for joining us, Arissa. And the second is Evika Pierre, litigation counsel at If When How. Thank you for joining us, Evika. Hello. So to get us started, um, I'll start with my first question to Arissa. Can you share a little bit about the mission of National Bailout and how you came to this work? Um, thank you for having me. Um, so the mission of National Bailout is to build a community-based movement to improve child attention and mass criminalization. Um, and I came to be in this work, um, particularly uh, when this work began, um, when National Bailout began, and when um, the idea was shared with um, some black organizers back in January 2017 um, by Mary Hooks, who is the co-director of Southerners on New Ground. Um, I was invited to uh, to be a part of a conversation um, with Black people that were working and thinking about um, the harms of money bail and the impact that they that they disproportionately have in our communities um, and how we can collectively intervene in those harms. Um, it was during that meeting uh, that 
as I shared, Mary Hooks shared the idea to do a bailout and invited us to be a part of something larger than ourselves um, in the spirit of our enslaved ancestors who oftentimes had to buy their freedom um, in multiple ways. so we really, so it was that time that we um, decided to do a Black Mamas bailout and to bail out as many Black mothers and caregivers um, before Mother's Day as possible um, and really recognize that intervention to be a Black queer feminist intervention, um, particularly as we recognize that there are specific impacts um, that the criminal legal system has um, on Black women and femmes um, that are oftentimes left out of the narrative um, and so not identified as a problem and therefore don't have um, a lot of solutions to meet that um, that problem. So we really wanted to to address that and to name that. Um, and so we ended up building out um, over 100 Black mamas and caregivers that year. Um, and the people that committed the organizations and the people that committed to doing Black Mamas Bailout um, became the founding members of National Bailout Collective. Um, and so we currently consist of over 13 organizations that are represented um, across the country um, and just doing um, really dope base building and national work um, around decriminalization in multiple arenas. Um, and so I came to be in this work because I was in that room that day. Um, I also had a resounding, there was a resounding yes. Um, in the room when Mary made the invitation, and I was a, a person that uh, said yes as well. And because of uh, my previous work working with um, Bell Funds across the country and supporting them, um, I was tasked with figuring out how to do that and how do we like actually make this work and how is it feasible and all the fun stuff that is surrounding like the technicalities of the bail system. Um, and so therefore, I ended up co-creating the infrastructure that is national bailout to hold the bailouts. Wow, that's such a great, rich history. Um, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, Yvka, what is the mission of If One How and what is your role as litigation counsel entail? Um, so the mission of If One How is a big bite. So it's to work to transform the law and policy landscape through all of these modalities that we use, whether it's advocacy, support, organizing, litigation, so that we can support folks in actually being able to self-determine if, when, and how they create and define and sustain families. And so they can do that within communities and on their own terms, right? So it's about providing the support so folks can do the things that they actually want to do. So as far as my role as litigation counsel, I think it it can be limiting and expansive. Um, So part of the work that I do is I support and work on our litigation moving some of the impact things that we want to move forward. So doing civil litigation and also supporting folks that are directly criminalized as far as um, whether it's actually being their criminal defense attorney or assisting their criminal defense attorney in um, cases that that may be brought against them. I do trainings for criminal defense attorneys, public defenders um, all across the country that want to learn and be ahead of um, some of the laws and the ways that they're used to potentially impact their clients. So it's a lot, but it's also very structured in one part, right? Because I don't think any one of us is going to solve the, the issues all on our own. We're all doing our part and trying to be of service to the general movement. Very true. Um, so Arissa kind of touched a little bit in the history of the bailout of how there was a queer feminist lens that was uh, that drove a lot of the work that happened there. Um, 
This question is for Ivica because I understand that if when how also uses a reproductive justice lens um, in driving some of their work. So at a high level, Ivica, if you can walk us through how criminal justice reform and reproductive justice intersect um, and why it's important to use a reproductive justice framework to approach criminal justice reform. Okay, so the way that I, I've had it explained to me and the way that I explain it to other folks is thinking of reproductive justice as this really inclusive framework and that involves folks being able to self-determine their reproductive lives, right? So that means if they create families, when they do so, how they do so, and how folks can sustain families and communities with dignity um, without a state intrusion um, that causes harm. So when you think about how expansive that mission is and how inclusive that mission is and how it works so hard to not leave folks behind, you can't think of criminal justice reform without overlaying that, right? Because there are so many pieces that touches everything at all corners. So in order for someone to be able to create and sustain families in their communities, they also need to be protected from state harm, right? And being able to navigate state intrusion. The state intrusion. So when we're thinking about the criminal legal system as it exists and how it's always existed in the United States, it's based in white supremacy. Um, it's based in not necessarily rectifying harm, but in and of itself, it causes harm, right? Because we're not looking at the root causes of why people commit crimes. How can we prevent um, some of the choices that folks have had to make before uh, they commit a crime, um, whether the crimes that are named crimes are in fact something that um, should be named a crime. Um, so it's this all encompassing thing about doing a decarceral, so closing down prisons, decriminalizing, making less things illegal, and also providing resources to folks, right? To be able to protect themselves and their communities and build that way. So when you're thinking about at least when I think about um, how can we disassemble things and recreate something in an image of a society that we want to live in. For me, it's important uh, to be able to kind of interplay that reproductive justice framework, that model, um, and being able to move things forward. Um, I think sometimes what happens when we think about law, especially lawyers, there's this idea that the law is not the thing that we're fighting, but how it's acting. But really the law is the thing that we're fighting. We need to question why do law, why does this law exist? Mm -hmm. What is it meant to do? Is it actually doing that? Um, if the law is supporting the harm and it's causing the harm, we are well within our power and our right to be able to change that law, right? If the system is supporting the harm and it's causing that harm, we can change the system. So when you think about like supporting folks and being able to have community, um, we have to also question the laws that exist in, you know, how that's formed and how that moves forward. I that couldn't, sorry, go ahead, Edwith. I, I think we're both going to uh, hopefully co-sign uh, what, what Yvka just walked through and in, in the depth and breadth of, of that answer. Yes, definitely co-signing on it and looking forward to diving deeper into everything that you've shared. Um, but right now we're going to hop to a commercial break. And when we get back, we will continue to applaud everything that Ivica has shared and listen to some of Arissa. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show.
So jumping back just a little bit, we've been also talking about uh, reproductive justice. And reproductive justice is a term that was coined in 1994 by a group of Black women activists in response to the lack of a reproductive movement that defended the needs of Black women, women of color, and other marginalized groups. Um, And throughout this conversation, we definitely have uh, jumped around and really seen how important it is um, the value of the human right to maintain personal bodily autonomy um, and self-determination. So, Eva, like in this topic, um, we've also talked about how how all of this is super relevant for us to have in the conversation now in terms of how reproductive justice and criminal justice are connected. We're going to jump in and dive deeper in the next segment, so we're going to head over to commercial break. Leslie Marshall, the simple truth in a complicated world. Hello, and welcome back to the Generation Progress takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Edwith Theogene. And I'm Brent J. Cohen. Thank you. Today, we are talking about the ways that the U.S. criminal justice system harms women and families, um, and also why it's important to approach this with a reproductive justice lens. Um, So jumping right in back into our conversation, this topic has been relevant even more in more normal circumstances. But why is applying a racial justice and a reproductive justice lens to criminal justice reform especially critical now during this pandemic? So I think uh, Arissa said a lot of really important things that um, I'm probably going to echo, right? So when we're talking about how the criminal legal system impacts folks, it impacts people as a community because it's not just the person that's going into serving time or is having contact with the criminal legal system that's getting directly impacted. You're talking about kids, you're talking about family members, you're talking about cousins and friends and folks that rely on that person either for income, for childcare, for um, support, for whatever role that they play in their community, right? And then there's the flip side of folks that are in and are the caregivers and are um, providing income to folks that are out, right? And I think it's important when we're talking about the criminal legal system to also shine the light on the fact that we're not dealing in a community filled with binary folks, right? There are people that are dealing with all types of oppression and harm because of their identity, whether that identity happens to be because they are black, because they're a woman, because they're trans. we're, there are black mamas that are locked up, that are gender nonconforming, that are trans, that are experiencing um, structural harm in different ways that cis black mamas are experiencing them when they're dealing with the criminal legal system. So when it comes to the pandemic and the fact that jails and prisons are, when folks are getting access to tests to be able to have these numbers, we're finding that these are just microcosms of hotspots of people being um, found to be positive uh, with this virus, right? Um, And not being able to access adequate healthcare while they're incarcerated. Um, Folks are dying. Folks are not able to have contact with their families, uh, even in the limited ways that they're able to have that contact when they're um, incarcerated, right? We're seeing the reports of people not being able to make phone calls that they're used to making. Not to mention, you're now not able to have visits. You have the aspect of having to pay um, 
a lot of money. It costs a lot of money to keep in contact with your folks that are in jail. Um, so when you add all of these existing societal ills and then you compound on top of it, uh, the fact that we're seeing that when folks didn't re really care about people that are locked up, that's getting exacerbated now um, because we're not able to have access to people. Um, we're not able to get their stories and their information in the same way. So now the light that was starting to be shown, you know, shown on some of these conditions is being removed out under the guise of necessity. So there are a lot of things to kind of keep in mind right now. And one of the big ones I hope that people take away from this is that we can't look away. And we have the responsibility because we have access to keep reminding everyone Please check in on your folks that are locked up. Please check in on community that's locked up. Um, people that are having contact with the criminal legal system right now, because if we don't, a lot of things can get swept under the rug under the darkness of a pandemic. You know, I think as you were talking, Ivka, what was coming to mind for me is the fact that jails and prisons, and including youth facilities, right? Like, I don't want to leave our young people out either. They are so incredibly unsanitary and unsafe in the best of times. These are places where social distancing or physical distancing or personal space largely doesn't exist. These are places where there isn't enough soap to go around and where that soap is, you often have to pay for it, personal hygiene products. Um, and that's before there's a global pandemic. And so as we recognize how so many of us are having to, our lives are upended and we're adjusting to what coronavirus and COVID-19 poses for us, recognizing that folks who are locked up don't have the ability to do the physical distancing. Are, are, we are hearing reports that folks are actually getting locked down 23 hours a day, um, essentially being put in uh, oftentimes in cells or being kept indoors 23 hours a day under the guise of somehow limiting exposure. Um, but the reality is you combine that with, as you said, either expensive or in some cases eliminated phone calls plus the eliminated in-person visits. And, and we really have primed greeting grounds for the spread of COVID-19 inside these facilities and the, the addition of, of torturous conditions on top of the folks who are already facing extremely harsh and, and arguably torturous conditions to begin with. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, one of the things that also comes to mind for me is the, the first incarcerated person in federal custody, and of course, most folks are in state custody, but the first incarcerated person in federal custody to die from COVID-19 was a woman who had just given birth, a native woman who had just, indigenous woman who had just given birth um, and shouldn't have been, you know, in, in, in most likely shouldn't have been locked up at all to begin with. Um, and so we're, we're really seeing that this is particularly acute, especially for folks with pre-existing or underlying conditions, including women who are pregnant. And in, and in many places we see um, mothers being incarcerated with their children in nurseries. Um, yeah. So, you know, Ivka, uh, excuse me, Arissa, as we think about sort of in the short term, what needs to be done to change the criminal legal system to protect people literally today and tomorrow and Black mothers specifically during this pandemic? Folks needs to be released. Um, period. In like a period. Um, in period. So, yeah, folks need to be released. And not only like just release, but like folks need to be supported, right? Um, it's irresponsible to release folks to um, to the street, right? Um, and to not have folks with supportive services that is safe housing. 
that includes like groceries. Um, and so we want, we want people to be released and we want people to be supported in their release as well. Um, and so not to be, um, continue to, continue to remain vulnerable to the impacts of COVID-19, the impacts of um, criminalization um, and poverty. So we want people to be released and we want them to be safely released with support. So, you know, hearing that and, and just thinking about if, and we're seeing some states and, and localities, and I give them incredible credit for this, um, are, are, are releasing folks. I, I don't think providing the type of support that you just talked about, Arissa, which we know is equally as important here, but they are releasing folks and it sort of begs the question, if folks are being are safe to be released now, why were they incarcerated to begin with? And so, exactly. you know, with, with sort of that reference point and, and sort of going back to the earlier conversation a little bit, um, Yvka, what kind of larger scale reforms would you like to see in the criminal legal system, recognizing that folks can and should be released today? Um, can we keep it a buck? Uh, I would like to see us moving towards this goal of prison abolition. And when I'm talking about prison abolition, I'm not just talking about the, um, the decarceration aspect of things, which is getting folks out of prison and closing down prisons, right? But also what Arissa's talking about is providing in-community support and services um, that would diverting the money that we're spending on building new prisons and like locking people up in cages and diverting that money into community-based resources that would go towards helping folks self-determine and solve their own issues and being able to move their lives and their communities forward, right? Because that's we need a combination of those things. And I keep talking about decarceration, decriminalization, and community stabilization, right? Like we need to be able to provide resources to our communities and we know that those resources exist because they're currently being used to build and maintain prisons and jails. So let's start getting people out of those places, start shutting them down, diverting that money into communities, and let's reimagine what safety looks like for all of us. Um, and also kind of blur that line about what we consider to be a violent crime and why does it mean violent crime equals prison? What is the, what's the reason for the number, right? 20 years versus 25 years versus 10, X, Y, Z. Let's just start asking a lot of questions and being comfortable without, with not having all of the answers right now. But I think right now what we're realizing, at least some folks that aren't necessarily within movements and going to protests, I think what some folks are realizing is that while we're sitting at home and our lives aren't necessarily, okay, tomorrow I need to go get up and do X, Y, Z, people have time to think sometimes. And I think what we're seeing is what exists is not working, so what can be better? Um, so that is the long-term goal of what I would like to see. Let's start getting people out of jails. Let's start supporting our communities. Um, and let's not build replacement jails uh, when we close them down, right? Um, instead of using the money to build replacement jails, let's invest that into community resources. Um, that's what I would like to see. That's the, the future that I would like to move forward to, that I would hope that folks come along with us while we build that future. Yeah. And 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 that's a that's a feature that will take 
some time and an investment in diverting of resources. And we just this past week, uh, you were featured in, in Generation Progress's social media work around the intersection of reproductive justice and criminal justice. And we, you talked a little bit about what you just mentioned now. And one of the things that you that you had said was co-creating new systems to replace what exists now to really support folks in community. What is what does that look like? So I think what it looks like for me will look different for somebody else. But I think that's the beauty of co-creation, right? Um, what I've been thinking about is we've tricked ourselves sometimes into thinking the way it is is the way it always has to be. But the systems that we have right now didn't pop out out of the ground and existed. They were created by someone. And the United States, as we have it, was created by groups of groups of folks that don't really look like much of the people on this call, right? Um, they would have looked at me and said, a black lawyer? Who taught you how to read? These were the people that created the system that we have now. So it's about time for a change. Um, so thinking about how do we support folks that have kids in school? Why is it that a school um, is responsible for providing food? If kids can't go to school, they can't eat. Start asking some of those questions. And I think that's part of the co-creation process that we start questioning the things that we have always considered to be infallible and immovable. And then that's how we can start moving things slowly um, towards the future that we would want to see. Awesome. Thank you, Ivka. So when we come right back from this break, we're going to talk just a little bit more here around uh, the criminal legal system, the intersection with reproductive justice, uh, Black Mamas bailout, and the work that we need to do uh, both right now and in the longer term here on the Generation Progress Takeover, the Leslie Marshall Show. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. Hello, and welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Edwin Theogene. And I'm Brent J. Cohen. And today we've been talking about how the U.S. criminal justice system harms women and families and how it's critical to approach criminal justice reform with the reproductive justice lens. Um, and we've been joined by our two great guests, Arissa Hall um, at the National Bailout and also Yvka Pierre, litigation counsel at If When How. So to jump back in, um, we want to make sure that people listening who are interested in getting more involved in this particular issue have a way to take action. Um, Ivka, Arissa, what should people be calling the representatives for and asking for and pushing for? Um, oh. Yeah, go ahead, Arissa. Oh, sure. Cool, thank you. Um, yeah, as I said, people should be calling for the mass release of folks. Um, and so going in, we are, one of our uh, founding organizations or members um, is Moving for Black Lives Policy Table, and they've created a really beautiful platform um, that can be located on their website and for blpolicy.org um, around just like the language, sample language, the call to demand the release of folks and, and recognizing that, and I'm grateful for Isaac for saying this, um, but like we are talking about the release of all people. And although we have had uh, great victories um, that have been won by our comrades across the country in mass releases, but that we know that those people that have been released are oftentimes like the non-nons or like the low-hanging fruit, right? Or the folks that are uh, deemed more like worthy or valuable release. Um, 
for numerous reasons, right? Um, and so really demanding that, like, all folks are released um, that are being held um, pre-trial, that are be ha- being held generally um, in prisons and jails across this country, um, and also really demanding for not only the release of people, but for their supportive care and their supportive services as well. Um, so that is definitely something that um, I encourage people to do, and folks can visit the InfraBL policy table for more information on language um, and guidelines as well. Great. And Yvka, if you wanted to jump in? Sure. Um I also wanted to just mention one thing. Back when I was a public defender and uh, national bailout had just started getting started and there was um, a Black Mamas bailout, y'all bailed out one of my clients and I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for doing that. As far as uh, connecting um, with If One House, so we are working to mobilize a population of relatively privileged folks, right? People that were privileged enough to attend law school, to be part of this world of like, you know, legal world, whether you're a practicing attorney or not. Um, If you want to get involved in doing some of this stuff, we do have uh, RJ Lawyers Network and we want to plug you in. Um, So if you go to ifwhenhow.org, we would love to meet you, love to talk to you and plug you into how you can be of service to community. Um, As far as like getting involved in RJ, man, it's an open book. I think the most important thing is to not come in as if you have all of the answers and recognize that there's a lot of folks that have been doing a lot of work for a long time that would love to have you come put hands in and join in. You don't have to start your own thing. It probably already exists. Um, And you can find a community where you really belong and you really um, can plug into. Nice. I'm sorry. I didn't know that the question was also specifically about like our organizations and how folks can support it, but I would definitely love to respond to that. Oh, go for it. Yeah. I mean, we are in the midst of still in the midst of doing um, Black Moms bailouts, so bailing out as many um, Black mothers and caregivers um, from jails and also um, paying bonds for adults in immigrant detention centers um, as we speak. Um, and so folks can definitely support the work of National Bailout by um, going on our website, which is nationalbailout.org, um, and giving and contributing to that and like as many um, Again, yeah, and, and contributing to that because what we're realizing, especially in the midst of um, this current moment, um, that the folks that we are bailing out have higher bail amounts um, and that there's, a, there's different and significant barriers to release. Um, and so definitely going on our website and um, giving what can be given um, would be greatly appreciated. And also, um, we encourage people to to learn, to learn more about the harms of money bail, to learn more about um, our partner organizations and our member organizations and the awesome work that they're doing um, in over 20 states um, in the U.S. And so folks can do that, again, by going on our website and clicking on our partner organizations and learning about their work, learning about our collective work um, to end pre-child detention and masculinization, um, and also to go on our toolkit, which we uh, created a toolkit to, in a curriculum to teach folks about um, money bail, to teach folks about pre-child detention and what that actually means. Um, and also, we created a toolkit uh, for folks that want to do their own bailouts or support local bailouts and how to do that um, in really in really generative ways so folks can look through those resources and learn more um, about the work that we are doing. 
That's amazing. Like the fact that you're not just doing the work, but you're providing the toolkit and the information so that other people can jump in and do the work alongside you. I think we just don't see often enough in this space. And I and I very briefly, we're coming close to the end of the show, but I very briefly just want to touch on the fact that a moment ago when Eveka thanked Arissa for bailing out one of her clients when she was a public defender, and for folks listening at home may not know how important it is to get clients out of jail pre-trial because the jury and the judge then see that person coming into the actual courtroom differently because you're not coming in with shackles from the Department of Correction, but you're walking in with your lawyer in street clothes or business clothes. And the entire mindset of that jury or that judge changes or even the prosecutor on the other side. And so there's tons of studies about how bailout pretrial actually increases your likelihood of getting out once trial is adjudicated. And so that was such a, 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 a moment that resonated with me and just want to thank you both so much for being on the show with us today an incredible wealth of knowledge about the criminal legal system about reproductive justice and about what can be in the future so that's all the time we have for today our thanks to our producer mark Romaldi, our senior press associate emily leach our guests arissa hall and Eveka pierre and to all of our listeners, make sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at Gen Progress. We'll talk to you again next week on another Remote Generation Progress Takeover. Thanks so much. Add a little play to your day with the Michigan Lottery. Over 90 online instant games to choose from, with prizes up to $500,000. A Marquette County woman recently won $250,000 playing online. Could you be next? Sign up online today to receive 10 free games with promo code FUN. Visit MichiganLottery.com to add a little play to your day. Add a little play to your day with the Michigan Lottery. Over 90 online instant games to choose from with prizes up to $500,000. A Marquette County woman recently won $250,000 playing online. Could you be next? Sign up online today to receive 10 free games with promo code FUN. Visit MichiganLottery.com to add a little play to your day.